Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the presentation of the evidence by the House Select Committee that Trump and his motley crew attempted a coup against American democracy on January the 6th in a hearing which will air live on nationwide TV at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Thursday, carried on all major networks with the exception of Fox News. Joining us is Will Bunch who is an award-winning national opinion columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer, and he blogs at Attitude, that's A-T-T-Y-T-O-O-D, dot com. He's the author of The Burn Identity, A Search for Bernie Sanders and the New American Dream. And we will discuss his latest article at the Philadelphia Inquirer, What January 6th Hearing May Show, This Isn't 1973, and How Much the Country Has Become Polarized Since the Watergate Hearing, at which, unlike Trump, Nixon eventually respected the rule of law and handed over the tapes, then resigned instead of leading a fascist coup to stay in power. Then, with the Biden administration announcing a two-year tariff exemption on solar panels made in Malaysia, Cambodia, Thailand and Vietnam that supply 80% of the U.S. market, we'll look into the invocation of the Defense Production Act to spur U.S. production and speak with Eric Wessoff, a prominent industry journalist analyst, consultant, speaker, and expert witness in the renewable energy field. He's currently the editorial director at Canary Media and recently served as senior editor for the solar publication PV Magazine. Prior to that, he was editor-in-chief at the green technology market analysis and media firm Green Tech Media. We'll discuss his article at Canary Media, Will the Biden Administration Let One Company Kill U.S. Solar?, and how one small, obscure, and defunct solar company was able to paralyze the U.S. solar industry at a time when the transition to alternative energy is so urgent. Then finally, we'll go to Mexico to get a local reaction to President Opus Labrador's boycott of the Summit of the Americas underway in Los Angeles and speak with Laura Carlson, the director of the Mexico-based Americas program at the Center for International Policy. In 1986, she received a Fulbright scholarship to study the impact of the Mexican economic crisis on women and has lived in Mexico City since. She blogs at americas.org and hosts The Hecho in America on Rompiviento TV. And we will discuss the caravan of 6,000 migrants, mostly Venezuelans, heading to the U.S. to coincide with the Summit of the Americas. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Will Bunch, who is an award-winning national opinion columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer, and he blogs at attitude.com, that's spelled A-T-T-Y-T-O-O-D.com. He's the author of The Burn Identity, A Search for Bernie Sanders and the New American Dream. And his latest article at the Philadelphia Inquirer is What the January 6th Hearings May Show. This isn't 1973. Welcome to Background Briefing, Will Bunch. Yes, thanks, Ian. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for joining us, Will. And you argue that the hearings that uh, begin at 8 p.m. on Thursday evening, Eastern Time, 5 p.m. in the West that the hearings will test whether America or Merrick Garland cares about a coup. So you would think on the surface that a country that prides itself on being uh, a, what, 240-year-old democracy that tries to spread democracy around the, around the world and stand for democracy and the rule of law, the idea of a coup would be an anathema. Yeah, I mean, I, I was thinking about this the other day. You know, if you told me 10 years ago that a... Um, sitting president of the United States uh, who just lost an election would spend the next two months with a gang of kind of shady co-conspirators plotting different ways to override the results of that election and stay in office, whether it was, you know, 
court challenges, which were thrown out as being ridiculous, you know, and then these various schemes that the fake electors ploy, for example, and looking at these crazy executive orders, which would have allowed them to, um, you know, seize voting machines or have the military come in and seize voting machines until finally it devolves into this uh, event on January 6th, where Trump just told his supporters to come come to Washington, it, it will be wild. Um, and uh, those supporters came to Washington and violently stormed the Capitol. I mean, if, if you had told me this whole series of events 10 years ago, you know, I would assume that president would be in prison by now, you know, um, for attempting to coup. But instead, he's not only not in prison, but he's the he's his party's front runner for the uh, next presidential nomination. And, you know, I think I th- so I think the significance of these hearings, I mean, these could be possibly a pivot point in in changing the conversation and, and kind of changing the broader public's understanding, because, you know, most of the public's not not on Twitter. They're they're not devouring the latest Maggie Haberman scoop in The New York Times about, you know, what Mike Pence's aide said about what happened on January 6th. So, um, uh from what I've read, I mean the, you know the the the, the powers that be on this House January sixth committee have really thought hard about how to, I hate to say it, and some people will see this in a pejorative sense maybe, but how, how to put on a show, you know, how to how to tell a story to the American people. So with the idea being that they want the American people to understand the significance of this threat to democracy, and uh, you know also possibly I. I, I believe that they'll make a strong case that crimes were committed uh, at the high, at the highest levels of government in terms of overriding the results of the 2020 elections. So, so, so those are the stakes. Those are the stakes in the hearing. I mean, it's and it, there's no guarantee that that they'll get that outcome, though. Well, the hearings will be on all the major networks, with the exception of Fox News. And uh, you mentioned Maggie Haberman, who who recently published in the New York Times that a top aide to then-Vice President Mike Pence contacted the Secret Service to discuss what he felt was a significant security threat to the sitting vice president. And then, apparently, on that day, we know that, of course, the insurrectionists were chanting, hang Mike Pence, they erected makeshift gallows. But apparently Trump told his chief aide, Mark Meadows at the time, that maybe Pence should be hanged. So you right. think that that might penetrate a lot of Republicans' consciousness that a sitting president was prepared to have his vice president hanged. And after all, he did urge the crowd to fight like hell. So there's a direct link there. I, well, I, I, yeah, I think, you know, I think we, I, we need to think about who the audience for this hearing is. Uh, uh, it's probably not hardcore Republicans. I mean, we, we can... We can probably safely assume a lot of them are just going to tune this out and not and not watch, um, especially especially now that they have the option to watch Fox News and and, and Tucker Carlson and, and and not watch the hearings. Um, uh, and I mean, hardcore Democrats will be avidly watching this, but uh, they're not the ones whose minds really need need to be changed. Um, but I think the fact that the fact that it's going to be on all all of the networks and, you know, not just CNN and MSNBC, but it's going to be on the, you know, traditional major networks, you know, ABC, CBS, NBC. Um, you know, the fact that the fact that it'll be carried live on those channels, you know, creates an opportunity of people who I wouldn't call apolitical, but are just not highly political people. You know, I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily call them low information voters because that term has kind of a pejorative connotation but 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 they're people who just don't obsess over politics the way that maybe a lot of folks listening to the show follow politics you know they vote they vote they take part in elections but they don't follow every detail and maybe and maybe the true meaning of what happened on January 6th hasn't fully dented their their consciousness yet and and this hearing will be a chance to do that. Now, now that said, I mean, I, I totally get. There, there's a lot of cynicism out there about 
whether this hearing is going to make much of a difference. And, and, and I get that. I mean, um, it, it's fascinating that this is happening in the month of the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in, because obviously there's a real connection here, some of it conscious, some of it just happenstance, that between, between the uh, infamous Watergate hearings on Capitol Hill and, and these hearings, uh, you know, again, we're looking at wrongdoing at the highest levels of government. Again, there's this question of what did the president know and, and when did he know it, just like there was in Watergate. But as, as, as Mar Margaret Sullivan pointed out in her excellent piece in the Washington Post, and as others have pointed out, you know, this isn't 1973. You don't, you don't have that level. You don't have a small mainstream media of three television networks and a few newspapers that, you know, and the AP and, and whatever that dominate the media landscape. Um, uh, and, and you don't have the public respect for those institutions, frankly. Um, and, and you have millions of people who are going to get their information from alternate sources like like Fox News, like their Facebook feeds, like their favorite websites um, that are going to, you know, ridicule these hearings and claim that it's all a distraction, that they don't want to talk about uh, President Biden's problems. And, you know, and, and you just didn't have those kinds of distractions in, in Richard Nixon's time. And the thing is, we do, I mean, we, we are in a fraught moment. I mean, there is, you know, you can't, you can't pretend that inflation and some of the economic problems aren't real. They are, they are real, but you know, there's a war in Ukraine. Uh, we've been talking so much in the last month about mass shootings. We've been talking about what's going to happen with Roe versus Wade. And January 6th was only a year and a half ago, but it seems like it was a long time ago to a lot of people. And a lot of people are going to be saying, why are you dredging this up now when Trump is no longer the president? Uh, you know, Joe Biden's the president. And so the onus is on the committee to remind those people, you know, why this is important, why such a threat to democracy can't just go unpunished or un unexamined, number one. And number two, and this is really the more important part, these, these threats are still ongoing. I mean, I'm, I'm here in Pennsylvania. We have somebody who was uh, heavily involved in January 6th, both as a politician and, and who was actually there and rented buses that brought, you know, dozens of people down to D.C., a guy named Doug Mastriano. He's now the Republican candidate for governor of Pennsylvania. And if this is a Republican year, like they say, like all the pundits say it's going to be, and if Doug Mastriano gets somehow swept into office as governor of Pennsylvania, he's going to use his power to probably try and reopen the 2020 election. He's certainly going to appoint a secretary of state to run our elections. He's going to try and put his finger on the scale and tilt 2024 towards Donald Trump or whoever else the Republican nominee might be. So, so this, this threat to democracy is, is an ongoing thing. It's not, it's not something that ended at 5 PM on January 6th, 2021. So, but again, We'll see. We'll have to watch these hearings and see if they can make that case to the American people. And again, I'm speaking with Will Bunch, who's an award-winning national opinion columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer, where his latest article is "What the January 6th Hearings May Show." This isn't 1973. I assume that Liz Cheney will play a prominent role. I don't know whether she's going to lay out the case initially, or whether they'll leave that up to Jamie Raskin. Now, you mentioned Watergate, of course. The Woodward and Bernstein recently made the point that there's no comparison between uh, Nixon and as much as a, a crook Nixon was, that Trump is just exponentially so much worse. Yeah, and, I mean, well, I mean, you know, Republicans famously went up Capitol Hill and told Nixon it was time to resign, and he resigned. I mean, and, and Nixon didn't, you know, and I'm not, I mean, Nixon was terrible in many ways, but, but he did resign. He, he also did not defy the Supreme Court. You know, he did, in the end, when he lost the Supreme Court case, he did turn over the tapes that he was asked to turn over. So there was some, you know, there was some baseline compliance with the rule of law and, and at least some of the guardrails of democracy. I mean, I'm not excusing the crimes that Nixon committed, but 
but uh, uh, with Trump, there's just no guardrails whatsoever. You know, I mean, he was willing to do anything and everything uh, to stay in power after an election that he lost by seven million votes uh, and and by you know seventy five or whatever it was electoral votes. Um, uh, so so yeah, I mean, I think Woodward and Bernstein are right. I mean, there's there's really there's there's really no comparison here, but yet we live in such polarized times that, you know, the American people were able to largely come to a consensus, you know, you know, 75 to almost 80 percent of the of the public agreed at the end that it was time for Richard Nixon to go. And you're just never going to get to that level of uh, support for any kind of action against Donald Trump. Uh, and so if it's, you know, 60, 40 that Trump committed crimes on January 6th. Uh, where, 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 where does Merrick Garland and the Justice Department go with that? Because even though they're supposedly upholding the rule of law and popular opinion isn't supposed to matter, but I, 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 hate, to, I hate to burst people's bubble, but popular opinion, I think, does matter to the Justice Department, you know, in terms of sure. is, there, is there public support for indicting a, a former president of the United States? Well, of course, if the case is strong, which I expect it will be, uh, then he may be forced. But I thank you for joining us. And I, just in a quick last minute here, though, Will, you've got this dreadful guy who will be running for governor and be able to appoint his secretary of state to rig the votes against uh, the Democrats. What about Futterman, the Democratic guy? I mean, he looked like a really promising candidate, and now he's got health problems, which seem worse than we well, originally... Yeah, just, well, let me be clear for your listeners. I mean, uh, we have two big races here in Pennsylvania. So let's let's um, let's not get confused. They're, they're running for different seats. Matt, Mastriano is opposed by for governor by the Democratic Attorney General of Pennsylvania, Josh Shapiro, who um, is kind of a center center left. He's not not mm-hmm. super progressive, but he's a solid guy, and, uh, and and certainly his health is good. Although he did he did actually have COVID recently, but other, otherwise his health is good. Um, so that's who's running against Mastriano, and and uh, you know, I mean, so Shapiro's so running against Doctor Oz, Doctor Oz, right? Yeah, yes, and um, that's. That is a critically important race for different reasons. It's, I mean, well, similar in a way, but it's important because, as you know, right now the Senate is 50-50, and it's probably going to end up after this election one or two votes either way. Uh, in Pennsylvania, that seat is currently held by a Republican, Pat Toomey. Uh, it's maybe the best chance in the nation for the Democrats to pick up a seat. Um, Fetterman... Sure. Spiderman certainly seemed to be a strong candidate. Um, I think uh, up until recently, I said I, I had told people I didn't think the health issue would affect him. The fact that his health is a little bit worse than he let on originally, and and the fact that he ignored his doctors for five years, which doesn't reflect well on his judgment. Uh, this could hurt him a little bit politically. I mean, uh, plus it's keeping him off the campaign trail for it looks like at least two months. Um, so um, we'll see. It, it's a close. It's a, it's going to be a very close race between Fetterman and Mehmet Oz. Well, Bunch, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And again, I've been speaking with Will Bunch, who's an award-winning national opinion columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer, where his latest article is "What the January Six Hearings May Show: This Isn't 1973." We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the Biden administration's announcement of a two-year tariff exemption on solar panels made in Malaysia, Cambodia, and Thailand and Vietnam that supply 80% of the U.S. market. I know it's true. Oh, so true. Because I saw it. I saw it on TV. 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Eric Wessoff, who's a prominent industry journalist, analyst, consultant, speaker, and expert witness in the renewable energy field. He's currently the editorial director at Canary Media and recently served as senior editor for solar publication PV Magazine. Prior to that, he was editor-in-chief at Green Technology Market Analysis and media firm Green Tech Media. And he has an article at Canary Media, Will the Biden Administration Let One Company Kill U.S. Solar? Welcome to Background Briefing, Eric Wessoff. Thanks, Ian. Good to be here. So, uh, Eric, the answer to your question, will the Biden administration let one country kill U.S. solar, appears to be that yesterday the White House announced that they're authorizing the Defense Production Act to spur U.S. manufacturing of solar and that they were basically, what would you call it, a two-year moratorium in the Commerce Department's tariff Yeah, moratorium moratorium's a good word, a pause, kicking, it down the, kicking the can down the lane a little bit. But um, yes, some of the tension and conflict has been uh, pulled out of this story for now. But the, the major issues still remain despite this pause. And, and this pause allows the solar industry to restart after a six-month paralyzation of the market. Um, but w- some of the themes that are involved here are how are we going to have a energy transition and move from fossil fuels to other sources without an, a domestic industrial complex to build these things? Does our dependence on China for solar panels simply give us a new energy master instead of uh, Saudi Arabia for or the Mideast for oil? Now we're dependent on Asia for our energy transition. Right, and uh, you can look at Europe and Germany being dependent on Russia for its oil and gas, and you see where that leads to. So how do we get in a situation where a small company uh, that seems to be moribund, I believe they haven't done any, made any solar panels since 2017, and yet they were able to paralyze the entire U.S. solar industry, albeit largely dependent upon imports from the four countries, Cambodia, Malaysia, Thailand, and Vietnam, that the suit alleges we're using components from China that should be subject to U.S. tariffs. And that is why this tiny little company in San Jose called Oxin was able to basically stop the U.S. solar business in its tracks. Well, it's a painful idiosyncrasy of our trade policy, as as it were, that a any company can petition the Commerce Department uh, for a cause. And in this case, Oxen, this rather inconsequential solar company based in San Jose, made this legal petition. And the result was that a tariff, the potential of a tariff, hung over the industry and it made it uncompetitive for the last six months. Now, it would be nice to have a domestic solar production happening to support our high growth solar industry. But we don't. We've given that away to China. And Oxen, this tiny solar company in San Jose, is making this tariff threat as as a way to bring back the solar industry to the United States by inflicting tariffs on other countries. But the, the, the real issue here is, do tariffs work? And I'm paraphrasing a colleague in my industry, but tariffs have never worked. I'm answering my question, forgive me, have, have not worked since the beginning of time. And the only result of a tariff is not the intended consequence. The only result of tariffs typically is to raise prices for the consumer. Yeah, and that's all that's done. A tariff on solar panels is simply raise the price of solar power to Americans. It hasn't resulted in the rebirth of an American solar industry. So an energy transition cannot happen in the United States without importing materials from China. In the meantime, while we grow that business, Biden has taken steps with the Defense Procurement Act and and some other incentives that he's going to be launching, they haven't been articulated completely, that will attempt to grow a manufacturing hub, a solar manufacturing 
complex in the United States. And again, I'm speaking with Eric Wessoff, who's a prominent industry journalist, analyst, consultant, speaker, and expert witness in the renewable energy field. He's currently the editorial director at Canary Media and recently served as senior editor for solar publication PV Magazine. And prior to that, he was editor-in-chief at green technology market analysis and media firm Green Tech Media. And he has an article at Canary Media, Will the Biden Administration Let One Company Kill U.S. Solar? So is this really a case of the solar industry shooting itself in the foot, or is there some other sort of malign interest in this? Because obviously, if you're against alternative energy, and I believe we still, as taxpayers, subsidize fossil fuel industries, and we know that Joe Manchin, is, who's in the coal business, has scuttled the Build Back Better plan, and he's the head of the Energy Committee on the Senate, and he's, you know, obviously promoting fossil fuels. So there is that powerful lobby out there. Do they have a hand in any of this? Because it, without being conspiratorial, it, it sort of suggests that a small, obscure company in California has stopped a big part of alternative energy, which is uh, solar. Yes, there's been rumors and speculation, and that's all that there is, of some uh, eminence agree, some nefarious sponsor of this of this petition, whether it be uh, oil and gas companies, whether it be domestic solar companies, or whether it be JFK Jr. and the Illuminati. I, I, I we've we've looked into it as deeply as we can and can't find the uh, some dark hand steering this. So. I, I, we, I have to take this as it's easy to be conspiratorial and certainly it would serve oil and gas interests if there was not a viable solar industry in the United States. But in this case, you can take it at face value that a somewhat less than competitive solar company has no way of competing on its merits, but simply has to do it through trade and commerce efforts rather than building a better or cheaper solar panel. Um, so I, I'd like to be able to give you a good conspiratorial answer, but I cannot. So then dealing with the facts, why is it that the U.S. can't produce solar panels competitively? Well, the United States can't produce iPhones competitively easy, either. We are not a nation that's good at global co competing globally on extractive industries that's not our place in an advanced late stage capital capitalist nation and so the united states is going to have to invest billions of dollars hundreds of billions of dollars in order to create a domestic industry that rivals the current chinese solar industry I, I, the united states has probably eight gigawatts of solar capacity that China and Asia probably has 300 to 400 gigawatts of solar capacity. We are we are just a rounding error in world production of solar. And we've given it away over the last couple of decades because we don't have a cogent industrial policy in the United States. But the countries that we're talking about, which are Thailand, Cambodia, Malaysia and Vietnam, they're new to the solar business, and how come they're more competitive than we are? Again, having an industrial policy where nations subsidize land and electricity use in order to power those factories is not something the United States has. Uh, we also have, obviously, the highest labor rates in, in some of the highest labor rates in the world. You, you can't build a solar factory in Germany uh, any more than you can build an iPhone factory in Germany. It's just it's not just the solar industry, it's every every industry. It's a it's a difficult it's a good we have to accept that that imports are part of the United States making the transition away from fossil fuels until we can launch with a cogent industrial policy, a real manufacturing core. Whether or not it's makes sense to do that, I'll leave to economists and politicians. Well, obviously, the labor standards are pretty low in 
Vietnam, Malaysia, and yes, uh, yes, Thailand, as, as well as as well as their environmental standards. Sure. Uh, so, but but what will then the invoking the Defense Production Act do to spur U.S. solar manufacturing? Um, it's going to have to entail grants and incentives in order to build a domestic solar panel industry or he's also uh, Biden's the Biden administration is also talking about using the Defense Production Act as to build heat pumps so that we can electrify residential and commercial heating and move away from gas heating. So so it's the electrification of the home. These are both noble goals. But again, it's about bringing mass production, millions of pieces, and um, um, along with the all the support components that go with it in order to, to build an industry that can actually produce heat pumps and solar panels in the United States. Um, it's uncharted territory. You know, the, the Defense Production Act was used for baby formula, I think, recently. It, it hasn't, it's not something that's been invoked by the executive branch very often. So it's uncharted territory. Well, it's not just solar panels and, and energy-efficient heat pumps. The Defense Production Act also wants to spur building insulation, electric transformers needed for the power grid and equipment like electrolyzers and fuel cells. So it's an ambitious transfer to alternative energy. But we know, for example, that if Donald Trump comes back, I'm sure it'll be killed, you know, stopped in its tracks. And he has some peculiar obsession about wind turbines. <laughs> so, I mean, we lost four years in terms of global warming under Trump, and it'll be the end of uh, any attempt to stop global warming if he comes back. So we are at a very critical point here. Do you get the impression that the solar industry can sort of stop fighting amongst itself? I mean, for example, Senator Sherrod Brown and Rob Portman from Ohio, they both support this petition to the Commerce Department by Oxen, the small company that's paralyzed the American solar industry. They both see it as a jobs, they see, they, they want solar as a jobs creation engine. They also happen to be the senators of states that house one of the few U.S. domestic solar production success stories, a company called First Solar. So th the fact that they both came from one state and First Solar is headquartered in that state is not a coincidence. Solar, First Solar is one of the few large-scale, gigawatt-scale solar production companies in the, that has a domestic base. So why does First Solar, why is First Solar a success and a company like Oxen that's behind this petition that's paralyzed the industry, a failure. Uh, it's a that's a many layered. Uh, there's a many layered answer, but First Solar has been a success using a non-silicon technology. Everything we've talked about in terms of solar modules uses silicon as a technology. First Solar is a an a American technology success story. They've managed to make what's known as thin film solar marketable and producible at a competitive rate, but it's a vastly different technology than that used by the, the Chinese. It uses a substance called cadmium telluride as the photovoltaic material as opposed to silicon. Um, so they're, they're sort of a, an isolate. They're, 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 a, they're, they're, they're a population of one that has managed to create an ecosystem around their particular idiosyncratic material. They, but, they, but it does it work, Eric? Oh, it certainly works. It certainly works. It's photovoltaic and it's eco economical. And in fact, in fact, one of the advantages that First Solar has over the other manufacturers is that it's the energy needed to produce a First Solar solar panel is much less than that to create a conventional Chinese-made solar panel. So. First Solar, again, is a American technology success story in, in terms of its commercializing a an idiosyncratic material and making it both efficiently from an energy standpoint and from a cost standpoint. Uh, I don't know if this can be emulated or replicated to create an American solar domination, but it is an example 
that it can be done in the United States. Well, I thank you for joining us. I mean, uh, for filling us in on this puzzling story, which at least the self-inflicted wound on the solar industry has been alleviated for two years. But it does sound like if we have an American success story, it would make sense to build on it, doesn't it? Absolutely. And there are other companies who, with a little bit of incentive, can create a domestic solar industry, but it's going to require consistent long-term thinking by our government. And that's, as you've mentioned, a new president can sweep all of these changes under the rug. So it requires consistent long-term industrial policy, not something the United States has excelled at in its last couple of hundred years. Well, Eric Wessef, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Ian, thank you very much. And again, I've been speaking with Eric Wessoff, who's a prominent industry journalist, analyst, consultant, speaker, and expert witness in the renewable energy field. He's currently the editorial director at Canary Media and recently served as a senior editor for solar publication PV Magazine. And prior to that, he was editor-in-chief at Green Technology Market Analysis and media firm Green Tech Media. And he has an article at Canary Media, Will the Biden Administration Let One Company Kill U.S. Solar? We're going to take a brief station break and back and go to Mexico to get a local reaction to President Lopez Obrador's boycott of the Summit of the Americas underway in Los Angeles. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from Mexico is Laura Carlson, the director of the Mexico-based Americas program at the Center for International Policy. In 1986, she received a Fulbright scholarship to study the impact of Mexican economic crisis on women and has lived in Mexico City since. And she blogs at americas.org and hosts the show on America on Rump Viento TV. Right. (laughs) Thanks, Ian. Good to be back. So what's the local reaction to President Opus Labrador's refusal to show up at the Summit of the Americas here in Los Angeles based upon the fact that the Biden administration did not invite Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua's leaders? Well, of course, that totally depends on who you are, because here in Mexico, as in the United States, the society is very polarized. Lopez Obrador actually has a very high approval rating, but there's a fierce opposition as well, mostly among conservatives and elites who benefited from the formal the former system of alliances between the conservative neoliberal governments. So there's been a lot of criticism on that sense, that there'll be retaliation from the United States. Of course, the the Mexico economy is very dependent still on the United States economy with about 80% of exports going there. So uh, the transnationalized businesses get very nervous when there seems to be a, a glitch in the relationship. However, there's also a lot of support, not just here in Mexico, but in other parts of South America. Uh, and, and I believe that this is a principled stand. Um, Cuba was readmitted to the Organization of Amer- American States after the Cold War policy of rejecting, excluding the country in 2009 and has attended a number of summits. And uh, so there's this idea that we are going to reassert from the government of the United States as the we here, you know, going to reassert something like an alliance of the Pacific, which is just an alliance that includes only neoliberal governments in the context of a summit that is supposed to be for the entire region was a severe miscalculation and on the part of Joe Biden, which I'm sure he regrets because it's really divided the country. And it's also been a showcase for the strength that some of the new progressive governments in the region have, led by Mexico. But a couple of weeks ago, Andres Manuel López Obrador said that the U.S. economic embargo of Cuba was genocidal policy. And then in a recent tour that he had of Central American countries, uh, Guatemala and El Salvador and others, uh, he was very critical of the U.S. But he doesn't seem to, it doesn't seem to bother him as much as U.S. policy bothers him. It doesn't bother him that uh, the leader of Guatemala just rehired this 
crooked attorney general and that the leader of El Salvador is obviously showing autocratic tendencies and bizarre shift to cryptocurrency, which, of course, is a perfect vehicle for money laundering, etc. So does he get the bigger picture that there's a emigration crisis here in the United States because people are fleeing these countries because they can't live there safely. There is no democracy in the rule of law. And that's presumably what the United States offers. So what's his attitude to that problem, which is, and of course, we have an enormous number of people from Mexico here living in the United States who fled the country. So how does he reconcile that? There's a lot to unpack there, Ian, and uh, I think the the first thing that I would say is there's a lot of grandstanding going on. You know, we're talking about high-level politicians, and that's what happens. So while he, he criticizes the U.S. government, and in many cases rightfully so, with an historical criticism of U.S. hegemony from the Monroe Doctrine, which he mentions frequently, that stated that the United States, that basically Latin America is the United States backyard. Um, there, there's a lot of criticism of the United States government there. Um, and then in terms of what's happening in Central America, there's no doubt that the Bukele government and the Guatemalan government um, are in the throes of corrupt and repressive presidents who cannot pass, you know, a, a kind of minimal test on rule of law and respect for human rights within their countries. Uh, I think that was one of the things that Biden was criticized for as well, that right-wing governments that did not measure up to a standard of democratic government, including Haiti, were, um, were invited with no question while he had this exclusion list of, of left-wing governments. So, yeah, there's contradictions on all sides there. In terms of the uh, Central American countries, it's important to note a couple things. Well, first of all, that each country is facing a very different situation. With Bukele, you describe some of the problems that they're facing. One of the ones that I think it's really important to add is mass incarceration. Basically, the approach of a hard line toward organized crime within the country has meant that especially the youth are being thrown in prison at an incredibly high rate. And that's creating violations of human rights. It's creating situations that are dangerous for them. It's creating violations of due process for many of them. And, um, and despite the fact that there's a large part of the population that thinks that this is what has to be done because the gang situation had gotten so bad within the country, it's going to have very severe long-term consequences. And it already has long-term consequences on the rule of law. And then we have Guatemala that we, you also mentioned and that we've stated that there have been a number of, of efforts by Giamate, the president, to, um, to erode the judicial system, especially the judicial system that was trying to cut back on the impunity for crimes of the past and for corruption against high-level politicians during, in the present. Uh, many of those people have had to go into exile, the judges that were in charge of those cases, or they've been uh, thrown out of their positions. You know, there's, been, there's been many, many complaints of human rights violations in both countries. There's been murders of land defenders, indigenous leaders, and others. And then we have Honduras, where it's an entirely different situation. In fact, the president of Honduras also followed the lead of the Mexican president, decided not to attend the summit for the same reason of exclusion. And uh, after many years of dictatorship in Honduras that caused it to be the number one country for expulsion of migrants, the, there's a government that is trying to reorient resources toward the most vulnerable sectors that's trying to make a dent in corruption. Of course, the former president is now indicted for drug trafficking in the United States. That's how bad it was. And it's not just him. It's a representative of an entire system that they called the narco government. So there's a government that's attempting to make changes, and attempting to make changes means a certain break with the United States, which traditionally supported 
the former corrupt governments there. So there is a, a caravan now heading north to coincide with the summit of the Americas here in Los Angeles that's basically just uh, left the Mexican city of Tabachula. Uh, there's 6,000 people heading north, including many from Venezuela and from Central America. So again, Venezuela, of course, is excluded, but Venezuela is also the source of a massive outflow of refugees, right? They've lost something like, what, a quarter or a third of their entire population who fled mostly to Colombia and in this caravan now heading up north. So probably it would have been... I mean, the U.S. did actually send a delegation. The White House did send a delegation recently to meet with the Venezuelans over cutting off Russian crude and maybe trying to replace it with Venezuelan crude because the refineries on the Gulf Coast of Texas designed to process Venezuelan oil. So is there any, I mean, it would seem to me that it would have made more sense to have Venezuela show up because there are some serious issues to address here. Yeah, that's right. That's a point of, of dialogue. And, uh, but there, of course, the problem is that there's, that they don't recognize the U.S. government doesn't recognize the government of Venezuela and is trying to continue with this farce of recognizing someone who's not even in the National Assembly anymore, you know, Juan Guaido. And uh, so they don't really have a counterpart there. Of course, to solve these issues, including immigration, including oil, and now with the, with the sanctions on Russian oil and the war in Ukraine, uh, there's been pragmatic attempts to at least negotiate on that issue with Venezuela. But for all of these things, it requires dialogue. And for dialogue, you have to um, take an attitude of inclusion uh, instead of this exclusionary attitude that the Biden administration has taken. The Central American caravan on that, you know, what's interesting is that immigration um, is much more complex than it has been in the, in the past. Mexico does continue to be, and you don't hear that much about it, and this is one of the things that the Mexican president doesn't like to talk about, but Mexico does continue to be the number one sending country to the United States. And then we have the, the immigration that has risen so drastically in the last years from Central America, but there's also a great deal of immigration from Venezuela, from African countries that are coming from Central American countries, from Haiti. So we're confronting, not just in the United States on a global level, a far more complex uh, situation regarding immigration that has to do with the structural inequities of the economic system, which when the Biden administration talks about going to the root causes it really doesn't want to go that far. You know, if you look at some of the solutions that are being proposed, there are more investment, there's basic, there's more private sector involvement. There are more of the same kinds of factors that actually led to the inequalities and the poverty and the looting of natural resources that have caused people to migrant, migrate from many of these countries. So there's going to have to be a much more profound analysis in order to confront some of those. And one thing I really want to stress also is that we have to be careful about adopting even the Biden administrations and other media uh, definitions of an immigration crisis. As it turns out, this surge, this supposed record numbers of people who are coming over the, over the border in the United States is not true if you're looking at human bodies. Because what's happening is that they're counting every crossing as a new person when there's this huge rate of repeat crossings by the same body, by the same person. You know, and if you look at the Pew Research data, how many actual people are crossing into the United States, the numbers are lower than they have been in the past. Why are so many people having repeat crossings? Because they're not being able to go through the process of requesting being joined with their families, of requesting asylum for urgent situations that have forced them to flee from their countries because they're being blocked by Title 42, this fake health measure, 
and by the Remain in Mexico program. So they keep being bounced back over the border and crossing again and being bounced back over the border. And so then every time they're bounced back over the border, they're counted again as a person and the right wing and including the Biden administration and the media are saying record numbers of people coming across the border. It's not like that. So given that you've got an exodus from Venezuela and a lot of the people in the in this latest caravan that's coinciding with the summit here of the Americas in Los Angeles. And for a while, the U.S. was not that critical of uh, Nicaragua because presumably they were, there weren't an influx of refugees coming from uh, Nicaragua. But since the government there has been far more repressive, there's been an uptick in immigration from there. So what would be a policy that would work in terms of dealing with this at its root causes, which of course is what... Vice President Kamala Harris was tasked to do, but uh, again, the U.S. is inconsistent because you're inviting repressive leaders like Bolsonaro from Brazil showing up, and yet these other leaders are not showing up. So is there a, a more workable and pragmatic policy that you would recommend, Laura? Well, there's a number of them because the reasons that people are coming are so complex. If we look at the security reasons, you have to go back to what's happened as a result of the war on drugs and why this policy of confronting drug trafficking and organized crime with militarized police forces and the armed forces in the streets has led to more violence that victimizes more people within the society and forces them to leave. In that case, some of the solutions that have to do with harm reduction, that have to do with legalization to take away that black market, and that have to do with an emphasis on human rights are, are really important. If you look at the economic situation, again, looking at some of these mega projects that are actually displacing people and saying, how can we have forms of investment that don't displace people, that don't just loot um, natural resources with no value added, for example, in a colonialist pattern that's been going on, obviously, for centuries. Uh, they re you really have to go back to looking at what the net impact of some of these uh, economic development, so-called development policies are, and, and get it right instead of creating situations of greater inequality that force people to flee. So there's, there's a whole uh, complex web of, of ideas and of solutions there, and many of them are coming from the bottom up. They're coming from the most affected communities that are beginning to get together, and especially indigenous communities, create their own kinds of some real small-scale economic solutions, um, reject the kind of mining and larger and mega projects that force them off their land and away from their traditional forms of livelihood, um, and call for security policies that are focused on public security and not on, you know, capturing drug lords and and creating more involvement for in increasingly violent armed forces and police forces. And is there anything that can be done about in terms of building the rule of law and democracy in these countries so that people don't have to flee in the first place? Yeah, I think these policies that I mentioned, and then the other thing to always keep in mind is building democracy by definition has to come from the people themselves in that country. So when the United States government talks about democracy promotion programs, it's an oxymoron. What they need to do is stop interfering with processes that express the will of the people, whether it's elections or community, um, you know, community participation processes. They have to look at what kinds of policies actually interfere with democracy, such as selectively funding opposition groups and the kinds of things that democracy promotion programs do, and go back to what Obama announced but actually didn't carry through with, which is an emphasis on self-determination for Latin American countries and an emphasis on democracy within those countries themselves. It's just not something that you export and it's not something that you impose from above. 
And indeed, we ha- here in the United States, our democracy is at a critical crossroads because if Trump's GOP comes back, Trump's GOP is dedicated to one-party rule to destroy democracy. They're rigging the elections in this country so brazenly. It's unbelievable what's happening here. And, of course, the role model for Trump's GOP is Orban's Hungary, where he's installed autocracy via rigged elections. So we're not exactly, at least the Trump GOP, one of our major political parties, is anti-democratic. So uh, we're not exactly becoming the role model we should be. Well, that's right. And that's a really good point, Ian, because if we want to have a regional discussion on democracy, then the United States has, government has to come off its pedestal of saying, now we're going to show you how to be democratic and talk about what the real international threats are to democracy. You mentioned Hungary, and that's where the GOP convention or the large meeting is being held because it is their model. And there we realize that a lot of the biggest threats to democracy in all of these countries, including Latin America, are coordinated, are orchestrated by an international right wing that is bent on um, promoting this patriarchal, capitalist, and racist model that retakes countries from the majorities to try to uh, create authoritarian governments in the hands of wealthy white males. This is an international threat. They're internationally organized. If we wanted to have a real conversation about democracy, we would have to all sit down at the same table and say, all of our nations are facing these threats. What can we do with it? What can we do about it? And not say, you know, one country is going to teach democracy to another um, as if it had the whole thing worked out, which the United States clearly does not. Well, Laura Carlson, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. It's been a pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Laura Carlson, who's the director of the Mexico-based Americas program at the Center for International Policy. In 1986, she received a Fulbright scholarship to study the impact of Mexican economic crisis on women and has lived in Mexico City since. She blogs at americas.org and hosts the Echo on America on Romp Eviento TV. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past One more light goes out in